0: This is America's Web Radio. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge.
1: This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. Thanks very much for joining us once again on America's Web Radio. The Doctor's Lounge is broadcast every Thursday morning on America's Web Radio and 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Together with my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, we bring you the very best in healthcare policy chat radio. Uh, We have a very optimistic time going on now, as I'm sure you're already aware, uh, with a very uh, surprising presidential election result. We have new hope and we have New vigor and enthusiasm uh, to fulfill the mission of our sponsor, the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We believe in free market solutions to health problems. We believe in the reduction of the role of the third-party payer to give doctors and patients full power, independence, autonomy, and choice in bringing you the very best, you the patient, the very best uh, in, in health care decision making. Uh, but I would caution that uh, we don't have a lot of time. We have two years uh, before the political landscape changes again. And uh, and so there is there's not a lot of time for celebration. We need some discipline. We need a strategy. And uh, with those thoughts in mind, uh, I, I introduce to you our very special guest, uh, Mr. Judson Hill. Uh, and he is the Uh, current um, representative for the uh, 32nd uh, congressional district in the state of Georgia. Uh, And what makes this very interesting is that Mr. Hill has announced he is the first candidate to announce um, an interest in uh, replacing Tom Price as we expect him to move from from his congressional seat to the director of health and human services under the Trump administration. So uh, Judson, thank you so much for uh, joining us in the doctor's lounge.
2: Well, thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity to join, join you for this call and um, this session today.
1: So let's let's just talk about some basics first because this is this this special election stuff is is not often reviewed by folks and so you know understanding you know what happens when Tom Price is can presumably confirmed by the Senate of course we expect that he will then be forced to vacate his seat and then something has to happen to fill the seat and those are rules that people don't really look at very much so why don't you spend a couple of minutes sort of walking us through uh, what happens from here
2: Sure and um thanks for that question a lot of what i say will have some uncertainty into it and you'll understand that in a few minutes but i think america should be greatly um excited about the fact that tom price has been asked by uh, president-elect trump to be part of his cabinet and to head up the unraveling and dismantling of obamacare as secretary of hhs it's a Tremendous opportunity for him, but moreover, it's a wonderful opportunity for America with his background and at the federal and state legislative level as, as well as as a physician for, I believe, well over 20 years practicing. So we're, you know, congratulations. Definitely go out to him, and we're looking forward to what he will be able to bring um, from practical, real reforms to um, doctors and patients and healthcare across America. Um, here's what I know about the process, and so far as the president's cabinet, as most of us recall, has to be confirmed by the United States Senate, and that does not officially happen until the president is inaugurated, which is on January 20th. They can begin confirmation hearings before Inauguration Day in the United States Senate, and I hear that they have every intent to do so because they don't want to lose time. The president, Trump president-elect, I'll continue to call him here, apologize if i don't but uh, the trump administration didn't want to lose time with a cabinet appointment such as health and human services as well as secretary of state and defense treasury and all the rest of them with that upon the confirmation if it's a sitting congressman and congressman's prices situation then he is confirmed and he then obviously would resign right after he could do that beforehand but we the expectation is he would not resign until he's confirmed by the United States Senate and then joins the cabinet. The date of that will be definitely after the inauguration on January 20th, but it's not known exactly at what point thereafter. It could be as soon as a day or two. There's a discussion about trying to get as many uh, cabinet officials confirmed by the Senate right away, but it it could last several weeks as well. So let's say just for discussion, it's, uh, congressman Price uh, resigns on February first. It Probably won't be that day, but it's going to be somewhere a week or two before or after, most likely. Sure. At that at that point, just the semantics. This is where I get into the um, the more ambiguity is the governor of the state of Georgia then does not appoint. Some people vast he does not appoint a congressman to fill a, uh, someone to fill a spot of the U.S. Congress, like you would for the United States Senate goes to a special election under our georgia law and the governor has 10 days to call a special election at which point there's a qualification period which will last a day or two or whatever and then the election cannot take place until at least 30 days perhaps maybe in 45 days from the date that special election is called all that says is maybe the special election probably lands somewhere between march 15th and april 15th give or take a week or two on either side and that part of what i just said is more speculative because you have the governor's discretion of when to set those dates and there's some other factors as well but that's um that's really he uh, the governor has a lot of discretion um from what i understand following the law but still the law gives him discretion to to set that date.
1: So one interesting thing you you said in there was that there's only, if if I understood you correctly, correct me if I didn't, but there's only like a day or two for interested candidates to officially file the paperwork, or or to to be made officially candidates, or, or did I hear that right, or is that...
2: Yes, that's the expectation, because even when we qualify to run uh, for a traditional general election, we get just just over four days. We had four and a half days. Um, the governor could stretch it out as long as he wants, but typically, when they have special elections, they have a qualification period that's fairly, fairly brief. More than one day, several days. I'm not sure how long. Okay. But it won't be any longer than probably. It, it wouldn't be any longer than the traditional time period, and maybe less.
1: Gotcha. And then, you know, if there were to be a runoff, since there's so many people that, that seem to be interested in this, then that would probably add a month or two to the cycle. So so maybe you're looking at I know, somebody swearing in to take the office probably May or June, conceivably that late, but maybe a little bit sooner, something along it, those lines it, roughly.
2: Yeah, it, it's hard to say when it would be, but um, if there's a runoff, I believe the law requires eight weeks and maybe nine weeks because of a, a federal uh, legal a uh, challenge uh, several years ago related to absentee ballots for the military. Uh-huh. So it's most likely everything would be wrapped up by Memorial Day, but that's, you know, it's speculative. It depends on what the special election date is on the front end, which will obviously dictate any runoff date.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so then, so once you get in there, I mean, it's, it's going to be um, – you know you'll you'll have the the second six months or you know whoever gets it i guess really the second six months to 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 start to to dig into some of these issues that will be facing the US Congress and i think pretty clearly the biggest one that's gotten the most attention at least is going to be the affordable care act and the approach to, uh, you know, how to how to deal with that because I think there's consensus that it needs to be dealt with somehow or that it will be dealt with somehow. Uh, it was one of Donald Trump's major campaign. Promises or planks in the platform, if you will. But um, how do you how do you see all that unfolding? Uh, and, and what are your thoughts on on uh, you know if uh, you know the proverbial question: if somebody died, made you king, uh, what do you right. think needs to happen?
2: Well, first off, before I touch into that, is I guess simply said with all the the logistics that I we were sharing a minute ago. Yeah, probably sitting here looking at a special election somewhere close to the April first. Okay, and then. And then a runoff election about two months after that. So okay. if anyone went through all the rest of it, it's probably where you're looking at the last couple of weeks, last week or two of March toward around the 1st of April and then thereafter. Okay. And and um, so I have been thankful and blessed to represent the 32nd district in Georgia, which is northwest Atlanta. It's all of East Cobb. And it's a, it's a good portion of the lower side of Sandy Springs for the last 12 years. So I represent perhaps 35 to 40% and up to about 45% perhaps of of the congressional district over the last 12 years. We're redistricting either today or before. And um, I can be reached at judson at judsonhill.com. That's my email that goes directly. Turning to your question.
1: Let me go back and repeat that real quick since I've I've got the clear microphone here. You're on the phone. So for folks to reach you... Uh that's Judson, J U D S O N at Judsonhill.com, correct?
2: That's correct. Okay. So, so Judson at
1: Yes, yeah, Judson at Judsonhill.com. Okay, so you're gonna circle around to the question of uh, ACA.
2: The question of the Unaffordable Care Act, yes. Indeed. Uh, I had a part in fighting the Obamacare of the A C A. Through the legislature, when it first came out, as we recall, Justice Roberts in the United States Supreme Court gave an unfavorable ruling for those of us who thought that the law was unconstitutional and, and uh, did not follow the parameters of, of federal law either. And um, and we fought to to uh, throw the most of the uh, legislation or all of it out uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. We lost several years ago, but we required what's called standing to sue you had to have a, a legal wrong, and I wrote or co-wrote the legislation with some le- state legislators across the country to create that standing to fight Obamacare. But what, what do I think we should do? Um, it's probably the same as a lot of the people on this call. Obviously, toss it out, and how would you start? How would you create a health care system if you could wave a magic wand? And I think you focus on well wellness in a health care system as opposed to today's sick care system. By putting the doctor and the patient first in the whole equation, right now it's often a third-party payer, the insurance companies are the ones, or the government bureaucrat are the ones that are dictating what procedures can move forward and, and the payments and structures, etcetera. You, you couple that with frivolous lawsuits and defensive medicine, and we've ended up with a with a mess. If that wasn't good enough. Your insurance is attached to your job in many cases. So when you leave your one employer to go somewhere else, your financial security at home's at risk because of the loss of health insurance. It doesn't happen the same way with automobile insurance, but it does with health insurance. So I would I would move quickly to solve um, the pre-existing issues uh, condition. Excuse me, issue the pre-existing conditions issue, it, which is also part of the portability. Of health insurance so you go through association plans perhaps you pull large risks but people could keep their insurance with them they wouldn't be at the risk of losing it by switching jobs and deal with pre-existing conditions secondly is uh many young people are still dependents of their parents even well into and and somewhat after college and i think one of the more popular uh, initiatives to have their dependent children still covered by their own health, health insurance. Hey,
1: Jensen, I'm going to cut you off in the middle of that thought. We've reached the end sure. of the first segment. Uh, you sure. are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio.
0: This is Skip Cornell, host of the Home Defense Show on America's
2: Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family
0: defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. You're listening to America's com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. Thanks very much for staying with us to segment two. We have a very special guest, Judson Hill, and we are talking about many different things. And Judson, I'm just going to let you continue where we left off.
2: Correct. Right. Thank you very much again for the opportunity to be with you. Simply in a broad brush, and I can get into the details in a minute, is deal with pre-existing conditions, deal with dependent care health insurance coverage, incentivize the doctor-patient relationship as the primary relationship in healthcare. So that's where the decisions are made between the patient, their family, and the physician and healthcare provider. And then also incentivize wellness, allow individuals to buy insurance across state lines to be more competitive or be able to seek out competitive plans. Uh, discourage frivolous lawsuits, and, and we can talk through that, and encourage innovation in healthcare. And if you did all those things, and there's probably more in, in other people's lists that I would probably jump to include on this, would be how do you transform healthcare to a system that works and does not focus on treating sick people, but incentivizing Wellness and obviously has that, that net to pick up the sick care, of course, uh, that goes without saying. So, dependent care, do, we've touched on obviously pre existing conditions and affordability of health insurance. I believe children who are dependents of their parents up to a reasonable age, 25, 26, if they are truly a dependent and they're not married with children, which I understand the Affordable Care Act allows that exception. Uh, should be able to be covered if you're in college or, or um, technical school or graduate school, something of that nature. Uh, also, I believe, third, you should be able to have a more competitive marketplace, a competitive environment to buy insurance across state lines. I wrote that legislation as a model national bill, and I think it was 2010 we passed it, because you can buy insurance of any other nature, from what I know, across state lines, whether it's automobile insurance or whatever. If so you can find a plan that works for you and have full disclosures, I believe you should be able to seek out in the marketplace what's your best interest. Yes, there's discussions about uh, mandated coverage issues and such, but the core mandates are covered, I believe, in most every plan, either by law or voluntary, voluntarily by the insurance company. How do you incentivize wellness? Well, among other things, you make insurance less expensive if someone... It stays healthier, just like your automobile insurance is, is cheaper if you have a better driving record. We did that in Georgia a number of years ago. It was by legislation, in fact, to say if you can get a rebate or you can get money back on your health insurance if you stay healthy. And a lot of states have that now through a variety of different mechanisms to encourage healthy behaviors because that's in the best interest of the person, their patient, and their family. And it saves the insurance company money, too, but it's in the best interest of the individual to seek out health care opportunities early. Privilege uh, lawsuits I wrote, I didn't write, I co-wrote the legislation in Georgia in 2005. I was a sponsor um, to discourage the frivolous lawsuits to put uh, caps on pain and suffering damages, basically to help uh, the marketplace stabilize and reset itself um, against those who are just more more choosing to sue because, they could, and also it it causes a current a tremendous, excuse me, um, increase in the cost of health care because of uh, defensive medicine and other other factors. I used to represent doctors in, in hospitals doing medical malpractice defense work years ago. My early practice of law. Um, Innovation is also critical. We got to incentivize innovative procedures as well as uh, practice and, uh, and and encourage it. And in, and we can do so in a number of different ways, that uh, by listening to the doctors and listening to the patients. But if you focus on the doctor-patient relationship, like we've talked about before, through uh, measures like uh, direct primary care legislation, but moreover, in the big picture, focus on the doctor-patient relationship and deal with some of these other important factors like pre-existing conditions and cross-state purchasing and making insurance one more affordable more accessible, which is critical. And uh, when you combine the affordability and the accessibility to healthcare, I think you have a winning combination. And that's what we need to do, and we need to do it quickly. And you can do it in a way, lastly, I believe, that that brings stability to the marketplace so you don't have people unintentionally falling through the cracks if you work through regulatory and legal reforms at the same time at the federal level. That was a mouthful. No, talk.
1: that was that was perfectly said. In in, in my uh, opinion, uh, I think you've touched on a couple of things that that bear repeating, and it's and and one of the reasons is because you know the folks on the other side of the aisle. are are very good wordsmiths and they're very good at playing sort of intellectual shell games with the message that we try to to deliver uh, as folks who believe in the free market and and the first one you touched on early and often which is the difference between um, disagreeing about what the goals are versus disagreeing with the methods, right? This ends versus means thing. And you made this clear and I just want to say it one more time is that I don't think anybody who's being responsible in thinking about what to do about the ACA would ever suggest that we're going to leave sick folks behind, that we're going to leave poor folks behind, that the free market means that all of these folks who are the sickest and the weakest and the poorest are somehow on their own. Uh, You know, nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, And of course, as, as docs, we work with these folks. I mean, these sick people and poor people have faces and names. And, uh, you know, they're more real to us than they are to anybody else. So at any time when these folks suggest that somehow, you know, that that, that repealing or or reforming the ACA is somehow going to do that is is really uh, intending to mislead. So I just want to say it one more time. You know, the the ends and the means are not the same. I think we all agree on what needs to be preserved. I think the idea of keeping, uh, you know, young folks on their insurance as long as they're single is good and you know that we need to come up with a way to deal with pre-existing conditions that's better than what we had 10 years ago uh and then the other thing i want to ask you and and you mentioned about uh expanding uh the legislation so that we so that health insurers can sell across state lines and you wrote some of that legislation so um i've heard arguments on both sides judson that, that some people say that that selling across state lines isn't practical for health insurance because you have to have local panels of doctors or that if we can sell across state lines, every insurer will go and headquarter in the state where doing business is the cheapest and sell across state lines to everywhere else. So uh, can you speak to some of those arguments that sure. have been put out there against the whole state line thing? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And, and touching on the first point two a minute ago is I would ask someone who if they say that you're going to lose – Twenty million people or some big number of people through a change is, one, the fact is that there's no proposal to do that. So ask them, who's told you that? We're, you know Who's recommending that? Because we haven't seen any proposals. So push back on it, because I think it's more of a, you know anecdotal or a fear factor uh, point. But going to insurance across state lines, it's both complex and it's simple at the same time. The pushback comes often from the insurance companies, some more than others, health insurance companies, some more than others. Not all of them have opposed it because they have their own business models that they've set up to be successful in the marketplace for the last 50 or 60 years. Um, we need to be doing new things. So um, I firmly believe that if I in Georgia chose to go to Alabama or Tennessee for a health insurance plan that was Better for my family. Better for my family. I should not be mandated what I have to have if I'm. If there's full disclosure on what the options are, but a lot of times people don't have health insurance because one, it's too expensive, and two, it's really expensive because the, what is mandated in there embedded is is something that a um, healthy thirty-year-old male doesn't need. He doesn't need um, maternity coverage as a single uh, adult male. But we can solve a lot of, a, a lot of this issue. So let's say I went to Alabama to buy health insurance. I believe that within a year or two, the insurance marketplace in Georgia is going to look for me and want my market want my um, business back. that the marketplace place would uh, often adjust itself like it does for supply and demand. They'd say we're losing a lot of people to Alabama on that plan. We're going to see if we can bring to Georgia the same plan. I firmly believe that because the competitive nature of that. Secondly is the in network, out of network. That's a, th- those are guidelines that have been set up within a business marketplace too, because once again, they're trying to succeed. The, everybody in healthcare is trying to, trying to, if they're smart, trying to at least keep a, make a profit. Otherwise it wouldn't continue to exist very long. Um, and so we could break down some of those requirements, so that yes, if I was my daughter right now is at Baylor University in Texas, um, she goes to see a doctor. How's that in in and out of network issue work there today? I mean, frankly, I don't know all the details of that. I should, but the same sort of mechanism could work, um, I believe, uh, here if you if you had insurance purchased across state lines. The purpose is to make it a competitive. So you're giving the customer, the patient, what they truly need and doing it at an affordable rate. And if you put all the bright minds in the room, I'm convinced you'll get a good solution.
1: So what if we look at some of the other pieces of of the ACA, the Unaffordable Care Act, as you call it, rightly so, (laughs) uh, that... um... That people talk about, you know, they they talk about the individual mandate. They talk about the employer mandate. You know, they, it, to me, all these things are like defusing a bomb, right? I mean, it would be it would be fun and sort of in your face to kind of write a one page bill that says everything in the ACA is null and void. But you know, I think it has to be more sophisticated than that. But so, what about some of these other? pieces of this legislation I think you've already touched on sort of the minimum essential benefits that uh, that we need to trim those back and let you know th- th- that folks in their 60s shouldn't be covering um, you know maternity benefits and, and and folks in their 20s don't need to be you know covering mental health or or, or things that they just might want want to pay for they might just want a bare bones catastrophic so I don't know if you have any thoughts and, and to be to be honest with the audience I, we didn't have a chance to talk about this one in advance so I'm kind of putting them on the spot so I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about some of those other pieces of the aca and sort of where they all fall in a repeal replace uh you know build it before you repeal it kind of it's something that gets us from where we are to where we need to be
2: well no that's that, that's a good question one of the one of the key um conditions for me that i left off is uh the tax reform piece to that because we should be able to provide credits and, and expanded deductions, etc., so that um, I can afford health insurance with before-tax dollars and after-tax dollars collectively. And I should be able to do it in a way that makes it more affordable. So it depends on your circumstances, perhaps with your family, and also incentivizing health savings accounts where they work for some to um, to make changes in the tax code to support um, and make to support accessibility to healthcare, make it more affordable uh what other changes there's there's a myriad of changes but keep in mind this is open enrollment for many just ended um johnson
1: i'm going i'm gonna cut you off there believe it or not sure. we have reached uh, the end of the second segment uh, you are listening to the doctor's lounge on america's web radio
4: This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Thank you.
0: You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchek. Thanks very much for being with us in the Doctor's Lounge. In Segment 3, we have with us very special guest Judson Hill, uh, currently a Georgia state legislator in the 32nd District who has uh, put himself in contention for... Um, the vacancy that we expect to happen when Tom Price is hopefully confirmed by uh, the U.S. Senate, and we'll need somebody to fill that space, and uh, uh, Mr. Hill wants to do that. So uh, we were talking about uh, the Affordable Care Act and, and some of your thoughts on that. I think we were sort of moving the conversation towards the transition, right? We have where we are. We have where we want to be. And the question is, you know, how do you get there? So, go ahead and give us. What sure.
2: And the transition, the opposition says the transition you're going to hurt people, and that's not going to happen. I mean, there will be times where people can. How? I mean, frankly, how how much has the current you know system of Obamacare hurt people? Uh, I can't begin to tell you the number of stories from the people that are having monthly premiums at a thousand, two thousand dollars a month and and more. So, but keep in mind this, the transition is like any other transition. It, it'll take some time, but a couple of things are critically important in my view. Stability in the marketplace, uncertainty in the marketplace, uncertainty and stability for insurance companies. So as you or I would come up for re-enrollment toward the end of next year, perhaps, well, if we if we make these uh, changes now and also change the regulatory environment, which is also critically needed for for physicians as well as individuals, are uh, resetting a lot of the, the guidelines that have put a huge burden on both doctors and healthcare providers and patients. When we provide that certainty, that will be those new guidelines and rules and laws will be embedded into a new health insurance plan, which would then roll out to the marketplace in the third or fourth quarter of next year. So in the meantime, that individual has health insurance. If they have it today, they have it until then. If they choose to drop it in, you know, March, and they drop it in March, like would happen in a normal situation, but our desire is to incentivize personal responsibility, to not exclude someone because they're sick, and to be able to group people into a marketplace of association type plans where the insurance company can create perhaps a, a, a risk. Transfer pool to deal with uh, the sicker population, which is just more expensive for health insurance, where everybody went. The marketplace is better, hospitals, doctors, health care providers have a lot of greater certainty. The patient has a world class health care, access to that at affordable rates where the tax code and the premiums, etc. Uh, now, for the first time, work for them, but we have a right, we have the ability here to to change healthcare as we know it, and our desires to do it right. You've got experts like Congressman Tom Price, who's been working on this for years, and they've got some great plans, and I look forward to seeing his plan implemented.
1: Well, if uh, if memory serves you know, on the subject of, you know, folks getting left out in the cold. I mean, you have exactly what you're saying, which is that their their policies don't stop immediately. They will continue until, you know, they were due for renewal. And at that point, you have to offer something. But if, if memory serves, Obamacare knocked some eight million people off of their policies uh, because, they, right? they, because they didn't meet minimum essential benefits. And I don't remember anybody howling over that. And, uh, you know, they had a place for them to land. I don't think it was a very, you know, it, it, it took them from insurance they wanted to insurance they didn't want. It was an obvious, you know, uh, proof of, of the lie that if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor and like your plan, you can keep your plan. But but nobody was howling about a system that was going to force policies to disappear when it was going the other way. True. Uh,
2: that's true. I mean, but I don't want to say it's true that we expect and are OK with people falling you know, falling through the, the no, no, far from health insurance, and I don't think you said that. It's no, it's, didn't didn't mean to imply have, that. No, you didn't. I and I just want to make sure that it, you and I both say that for the listening audience. Here is um, people without access to world class health uh is a concern for me. It can be handled through a, a true safety net program, through clinics, through a lot of different measures. Not always run to the hospital emergency room where someone else is paying for it because you you had the ability to plan versus it's a true emergency. But um it's not our desire to see anybody lose out. We just don't think or many of us don't think that that government's a solution in healthcare never was intended to be, shouldn't be. And we can reset the tables on healthcare to make it more affordable, more accessible. And to meet the needs of you, your family, your parents, and your children.
1: Can you um, unpack a little bit more about what a what a risk pool looks like, or a risk transfer pool looks like? Because I think that a lot of people have a lot of concern about you know what happens. Uh, in fact, even the you know when I went for a haircut a couple of weeks ago, right. the person cutting my hair was saying, "Well, yeah, I'm I'm you know yeah Trump was elected, but what's going to happen to my health insurance? Because you know she works by herself, uh, you know she is a one person shop." And, uh, you know, if, you know, and, I, and she's healthy. But I don't think people really get at, at, the, at the base level exactly how, you know, a risk pool works so that a, a diabetic, hypertensive 60-year-old could get insurance they could actually afford.
2: Right. I mean, and keep in mind, I'm not the expert here, but here's some brainstorming concepts that I've been thinking through and working through. One is that, that hairdresser is, could be part of an association today. Uh, the Georgia Hairdressers Association. Let's say, let's say that they are. Many people are part of, voluntarily part of different associations, small business, you know, NFIB, different associations. Maybe you're a Southern Baptist and there's a biggest, there's, that's a huge association plan from what I understand currently exists, but there's associations. To allow the law to, the healthcare laws to work to incentivize and encourage association memberships, I think it's something we need to really look at. Today, the association plans, uh, really don't work for health insurance the way that I, uh, envision. And so it doesn't, it'll work for individuals. But what about the risk? Why does an insurance company want to bring in somebody who's less healthy and probably older too? It's because it's expensive for them. This, the, from the very beginning, they're, they're having to pay a big health insurance or health care cost when they're not for someone who's, you know, 16 or 26 years old, unless they have already have some inherent condition. But if you provide a risk transfer pool, so the insurance companies don't get hurt on the front end because of adverse selection, which is where you end up with a less healthy group of individuals by prior selection or by happenstance. But everybody, all, all, the, all the patients come to a several different pools, but at the end of the year or the last quarter of the year, the those companies that are insuring patients, they come together and they look at, okay, where's your risk and where's your risk? And then they back, it's not reinsurance, but it's kind of a concept of reinsuring the highest risk. So you spread that so it's not unfairly burdensome to, it, to any individual health insurance company, which means it won't be as burdensome to the individual patient. Because today's marketplace, that's often how they share the risk is somebody in my my company just joined us and they have diabetes. Well, they're more costly. So guess what? Everybody in the company, especially small business, their health insurance premiums go up because we only have 10 people here and we have the 11th person that's less healthy. Right. If you change the system to spread the risk, then we can take care of those people that are sick. And those people that are healthy, all at the same time. This is not a, a Pollyanna. It's 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 you know it's people much smarter than me have been working on this for quite some time. We've had we were working on it before Obamacare, and um, I think that Tom Price is uh, a great, tremendous asset for America. He is definitely for Georgia and has that, and he's part of that solution. And I applaud the president, the Trump, to to pick him uh, to be a key integral part of his team to solve health care for the people of America so, and for the health care providers because it has to work for all of them. Agreed.
1: So we got about three minutes left here in this segment. So let's, uh, let's try talking about health savings accounts. Do you sure. have any feelings about how they do work, how they should work, what part they should play in some sort of new
2: paradigm? I believe if I want to set aside money, tax-free, pre-tax dollars, to provide for health care for my family, I should be able to do so. Uh, sometimes I think the health care providers are, are a little concerned because often those come with very, very high deductibles, and so patient comes in and is not able to pay the deductible, and there's not enough money in their health savings account. There's a way to do that. Today we cap what you can put in your health savings account. But some individuals are able to pay more. Not everybody, of course. But if you can do so with pre-tax dollars, which is a more efficient way to do it, you should be able to do it. Um, also, we should incentivize wellness. And if you do that, you can couple a, a uh, health savings account with a with a uh, um, a uh, catastrophic type plan for some people. It depends on your circumstance. It could work, you know, especially for the 28, 30, you know, young thirty year old male and or couples that may not have the existing health care costs. There's the if you don't hear anything out of what I've said today, remember one one please, and that's there's no silver bullet. There's no one silver bullet. It's not the health savings account or or any of the rest of it. It's a collective you put the you you create a system that if no was not a not if yes, excuse me. I apologize. Late in the late in the day here, but if if you could be king as you started out, Mike, for the day, or emperor for the day, and you can design something with every option available to you, what would you do? And I'd say touch on a lot of these uh, uh, measures that you and I've been talking about today. And if you can achieve that, and then you can tweak it from there, I think you'll find a healthcare system that works for most Americans and then when it doesn't a safety net system that's a true safety net can be put in place to care for those that are most vulnerable
1: yeah that sounds about right how about um we got we got about a minute left how about direct primary care i know you have an interest in that too
2: i have a passion for direct primary care because it focuses on the doctor patient relationship the patient should be able to uh go to their doctor and say on a monthly basis if we can negotiate a hundred dollars a month to see me for whatever your types of practice you have, doctor, like an internist or primary care type, uh, the doctor should be able to engage with the patient and, and have a direct relationship. Today in Georgia, it's against the law to do so. I think that needs to be changed because, once again, focus on the doctor-patient relationship first and get the bureaucracy, whether it's insurance or government bureaucrats, out of the way.
1: Is it reasonable to... Uh to rewrite legislation so that Medicare funds could actually support those monthly premiums?
2: Yes, I believe you can do so if you do it, you know, in the right way and make some changes in the regulations. I wrote a bill years ago with Peach Care, or chip bill before Obamacare came along, that actually created a a voucher or a scholarship for Peach Care recipient patients to keep them them on private health insurance at a, at about a hundred million dollar a year savings to the state taxpayer, payer to you and I, save over a hundred million dollars a year and give those young children who are on peach care, uh, better access to care with a higher um, reimbursement to the healthcare providers. You can do it in a free market way, and I, I look forward to trying to do that as well with other areas of healthcare, including what we didn't touch on, which is the long term care and and uh, Alzheimer's and dementia and other me- other areas that are, are um, have critical needs for reform to solve what is only becoming a greater issue for those individuals, okay. you know, elderly as well as their families.
1: Well, we just about used it up, my friend. I appreciate you being here. Um, special guest Judson Hill, you are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio.
0: Merry Christmas from all of us at America's Web Radio.
3: This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine
4: on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare. And learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Thank you.
0: You're listening to America'sWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Doctor Mike Karuchek. Thanks very much for sticking with us all the way through segment four. Listen to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Uh, in the last three segments, uh, you heard. Um, My two guests, uh, Randall Oates and Don Lee, uh, talk about uh, some of the things that they are seeing in the information technology community uh, regarding the the change that's coming up, regarding the level of uncertainty that's coming up. And, And I think they had some very interesting things to say. I think Don put it very well when he said in in, and didn't mince words um that look the time has come for the health information technology sector to get out from underneath regulations that create artificial demand and uh he said it quite clearly and i love the way he put it he said look if you need a law to maintain the demand for your product if your product is that bad you need to pack it up and go home uh, you got to come up with something better to do because this is this is not the kind of thing that we want to see in health IT. I thought that was great. Uh, he said some other things that were equally as uh, strong, and uh, and we heard um, Doctor Oates, uh, who is both a physician and the CEO of his software company Soapware, who by the way makes a direct primary care variant of their product called Soapware DPC uh, for doctors doing primary care, uh, and, and saying that that he suspects. Uh, that there is uh, perhaps a a difference in the health IT and medical ruling class uh versus the rest of us in terms of how we feel about potential changes in regulations uh that the uh, the ruling class thinks this is all status quo nothing's going to change everyone remain calm the old order will persist uh, you know, keeping the haves and the have-nots farther apart and, uh, and, and that, that there was a difference, that, and that perhaps there is a populist movement, uh, my words, not his, uh, that, that perhaps the, the, the folks that are actually getting the work done every day as opposed to the CEOs and the CXOs sort of living at 50,000 feet have perhaps different feelings about what's going on. And uh, and and today I learned some things with what I was doing today that that may suggest that he was right because I floated his uh, his ideas without mentioning his name floated his ideas past an audience of about five hundred people. Uh, most of those with health were health information technology, CEOs, CXOs, CIOs, etc. Uh, I think there were a few other folks in there that were more in the working class. But uh, this was a very interesting meeting that I attended today. I was on a panel with two other physicians and uh, a reporter from USA Today, their health reporter, monitoring the panel. And, uh, and I floated this idea out there that perhaps there was more sympathy and interest in the health IT community, um, then one would guess, you know, with the idea of of getting rid of laws that you know do force demand for their problems, but at the same time tell them how to do their job, and got a little bit of muted applause from the audience, and uh, and that was kind of a, an interesting thing. I was I kind of floated that out there to see what sort of response I get. So what I'm going to try to do to, in this last segment, right? We got about nine and a half. Some odd minutes left to sort of combine everything that's been going on. We've got these two guests that we had and then I have been extremely busy this week. I'm, I'm recording this uh, late at night here before the Thursday morning broadcast and uh, I'm doing it with no broadcast notes. I'm just winging this because uh, I have been, my eyes are kind of crossed here after traveling to Washington, D.C. on Sunday and being in an all, all afternoon Sunday meeting uh, getting home in time. This is what doctors do, right? We We have to maintain Maintain our full-time practice and try to fit all this stuff in for those of us who are foolish enough to try and change the world and and you know the the, the obligations at work don't go away and the need to keep those, you know, keep the the clinic busy and the operating room schedule full. That stuff doesn't go away. I can't just block out a day or block out three days and say oh, I'm going to go play with stuff. Uh, you know, you have to maintain that. You know, doctors are like plumbers. I've said that before, and it bears repeating that. Uh, you know, if we're not under a sink fixing a leak, I guess that's more. Apropos for uh, Doctor Hal Schertz, the urologist, to be saying something like that, but uh, if we're not actually doing work, if we're not doing heavy lifting, seeing patients are operating, uh, then you know there's no money coming into the practice, and there's no money to pay the fixed expenses, right? I mean, even when I'm gone, there's still an office with rent, there's still staff to pay, there's still malpractice insurance, there's you know the administrator that we pay, obviously, and so you know there's the, there's no room to just say I'm going to take a few days off and sort of catch up on all this stuff. We have to put in a full day at work and then. Come and do all this neat stuff. So thankfully, the meeting I was just at in Washington, D.C. took place on a Sunday because it was a meeting with doctors and legislators. And of course, all the doctors face exactly what I'm talking about. And so the meeting was moved to Sunday so that more doctors could come. And uh, come along, they did, I will say. This is a meeting uh, that's taken place every year for the past four or five years, I think. Uh, and um, you know, it is hosted by Representative uh, Pete Sessions from Texas, who graciously uh, you know, uh, uh, puts this meeting on for doctors to go to. Uh, and I've gone to a couple, three, four of these. Um, this one, I think, due to Trump's recent election. Uh, was distinctly different in character. First off, there was far more physicians attending. Usually this meeting is 30 or 40 docs. We had 150 easy. Uh, we completely filled the House of Representatives Finance Committee Hearing Chamber. And uh, there were folks leaning against the wall, sitting in the back. They're bringing chairs in. We got people wedged in behind the projector screens, behind the speakers. Got folks everywhere, and uh, the electricity was palpable. Uh, because we've been living, we docs, you know, under eight years of—I uh, don't know what you want to call it siege, exile. Something like that, you know, concerned physicians who have a a sympathy for the doctor-patient relationship uh, have under the current administration had absolutely no daylight whatsoever Uh, and only, you know, one wave of bad news after another with Obamacare and ICD-10 and meaningful use and MACRA, Uh, it seems like we're always... Under siege or under some sort of you know hostile force, and now uh, as we uh, said uh, or we're going to say in a show that's coming up over the holidays, we've already reported you know if you're if you notice that your physician has a little more spring in his or her step or a little bigger smile on his or her face, this is why, uh, because perhaps uh, with the election of someone other than Hillary Clinton, note how I said that uh, that uh, that there is a break in the clouds, and so we're very excited to see what Trump can do. We're very excited to see that he has uh, nominated Tom Price as the Secretary of Health and Human Services and Seema Verma to head CMS, and uh, and so um, we're, we're all very excited to see that. And so the room was was electric, uh, and 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 there was lots and lots of stuff going on. This was actually, uh, you know, a six hour. A barroom brawl, if you will. Um, be, there were four legislators there. There were 150 physicians there. Uh, and lots and lots of healthy, spirited debate regarding, number one, what should we do about macro? You know, what does repeal and replacement look like? Is repeal and replacement actually practical? Uh, and, and lots of disagreement on that, as you might imagine. Uh, and then the same sorts of questions regarding macro. Uh, some folks thought that, well, gosh. MACRA passed the Senate, I think, 92 to 8. I mean, this was, you know, as the supporters like to say, a bill with strong bipartisan support. Uh, and and that's when I pushed the little button on my microphone and said, "Well, fine. It was bipartisan only because people were dying to get rid of SGR. The Congress was dying to get rid of it so badly that they would have voted for anything that had a repeal of SGR in it. And and so they didn't read the rest of the bill. Uh, and and that comment got a fair amount of traction. I think there's a lot of agreement among the docs about that. But I and I, I still feel that way. I don't think macro is bulletproof. Uh, I think that we should aim for a full repeal. Uh, and and gosh." Uh, You know, if not now, when with with, you know, the White House uh, under friendly hands and uh, the Republicans in control of both houses of Congress, I don't if you don't do it now, when exactly are you going to do it? Uh, And a macro can be repealed. I think it's going to take a lot of discipline uh, and I think it's going to take a a sense of urgency because I think the longer that we leave that rule in place, uh, the harder it is going to be. To uh, to repeal it and pass legislation to replace it. So I think we need to get on that, uh, you know, that that task very quickly. Uh, But I don't know that we can fully succeed unless uh, unless the messaging is good. And I think this is a good time for physicians to take over the um, quality message. Right now, the government owns the quality message. They've owned the quality message since 2006 when they came out with the PQRS program and basically said that no quality comes from anywhere unless it comes from us, the government. And that's wrong. We can take over this quality initiative. Medical specialties are already doing this. In our own, in my own specialty of otolaryngology, we have a program called Regent where we will be reporting to ourselves and each other in a centrally kept registry for a minimal fee per year of about $300, which I think is a good deal. Uh, And I'm hoping I get one of the uh, architects of the registry uh, of Regent, I'm sorry, it's called Regent, Uh, one of the architects of Regent uh, on this program to uh, so that she can give us uh, a full breakdown of how that's going to look. But I think unless doctors take over the quality narrative, at the same time, that we move to replace macro, we may have a public relations problem that's going to make that a whole lot harder than it should be. So we'll see, you know, whether we can succeed with that or not. I'm confident we can. You know, the ACA is a bit more complicated than macro um, because, you know, if we pull ACA out, you know, there, there will be some large institutions that have already invested in it, but, you know, we could conceivably sunset the – Uh, incentives while we immediately shut down the penalties you know on the ACA side we've got a lot more infrastructure dependent on the ACA's existence we have 20 million people who are on ACA plans through the exchange and and of course there's things you need to do Uh, there were some good suggestions made at the meeting that perhaps you let everybody keep their Obamacare plan for six months while we work on finding a replacement um, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know exactly how to make that sausage, as the saying goes. Um, you know, I think I am smart enough, like everybody else that was at this meeting, to know that, I, that we should not uh, settle uh, for anything that's, that's, that's less than that because we certainly have the, the political climate, to you know, the political clout at the moment to make just about anything happen that we want. Contrast that with the meeting that I went to today, which was called the Health IT Leadership Summit. This was all these CEOs and CXOs that are in high positions in health IT companies in Atlanta and the surrounding Southeast, and uh, you don't get a sense that they're very aware. The, um, the meeting opened with a keynote address from Andy Slavitt, and I will um, take this opportunity to thank him once again uh, publicly for everything that he has done for me this year. You remember, and I won't drag the story out, that this started off with a letter that I wrote in February, culminated with having him on the show as a guest in June, and then, you know, this thing here where we got him as a keynote speaker for this meeting is kind of the last thing that was a, a part of that relationship. So um, I, I think maybe we'll just, you know, close in the last 20 seconds before, you know, future shows move on to, much more aggressive uh, sort of things, talking about how we're going to make changes, hopefully, in 2017. Uh, just to thank Andy and say, look, you know, I-, I think he's a class act. Uh, I think he's brought uh, accountability and class to a place that uh, uh, often you don't see those things. So we are at the end of the hour. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge
0: on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio.